Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, in my continuation, after I have made a pause in my line of presentation <clears throat> by presenting last week the lecture, the satsang about the space and time as understood in the tantric meditation, in the tantric metaphysics, I'm turning to that, I'm turning back, I'm returning to that request which came, several requests that came of explaining more about the phenomenon of karma and to understand it properly, to place it in the middle of the process of evolution. As I said, these are issues which are approached in much more detail and with precise technologies in the metaphysical workshop. So perhaps it's a good time of the year to do this. It's also like a warming up to the metaphysical workshop. Two weeks ago, I had started speaking about the process of evolution according to yoga. The fact that the yogis identified that one of the fundamental issues in human existence is evolution and that eventually we can even state that we are all here to evolve, that evolution is our purpose, that life has a purpose, the evolution. It's very difficult to zoom back the camera and to say from where to where, what is the beginning, what is the end, and also the human mind is also looking for a motivation, like why, <clears throat> why are myriads billions of billions of billions of souls goaded into evolution, to whom does it serve, what does it serve, and um, of course human beings try to find the justification of that with the human mind, and then whatever answer you give, you know, like in the name of God, this is, or in the face of God, this is just a game, like that's one of the answers given in India, that the whole universe is a lila, and lila means God is like a crazy kid that plays, and what purpose is in a game? Nothing, just to have fun. And people then think, okay, so all the pain and the suffering and the limitation, and just on this planet, not to mention of what it could be at the level of the whole universe, is just because a crazy kid is playing. That's a very cruel play then, if life is just a game, and all that, uh, which show very clearly that the human beings can't understand, because they always expect that the universe would have an egocentric, limited, small reason by which I can evaluate and say, mm, I think God is right, I think the universe is right to have created us and this solar system and evolution. Like, unfortunately, we are so small in a certain respect that nobody is asking for our opinion in this process of evolution and we are not asked to evaluate it. If we agree with it, if we understand it, if it sounds reasonable to us or such factors. Um, and we saw that the yogis meditating at high levels, they said, however, it can be seen that evolution is the purpose of everything, that everything evolves one way or another, that living more from the standpoint of the soul, either we talk about the animal soul or the human soul or any other form of existence, 
that living more in time, more and more and more, automatically means that um, there must be a development, there must be a growth, there must be a transformation. Either we look upon that transformation in simplistic materialistic terms like the Darwinist biological evolution of life forms and DNA, as inexact as it may sound sometimes, but still as an idea, as a concept, or we are talking about evolution in a more Buddhist, Hindu, religious, metaphysical, spiritual way, that evolution means the development of the soul, the polishing of the soul, the perfection, the road to perfection of the soul. And uh, we saw, and this is one of the very important pillars of metaphysics that we talk about in our workshop, and um, a, lot, uh, a lot in yoga and in the spiritual life spins around this concept of evolution. And I can see every time when I talk to people who are on the fringe of spirituality that this changes a lot. Like if you don't think about evolution, if you do not consider evolution possible or a concept which is realistic then it's completely not worth it talking about anything spiritual. It's completely not worth it talking about anything such as spiritual practice or meditation or other things because all these things find their usefulness only in this concept of evolution. Without evolution, there is no target. There's nowhere to go. There's no transformation. There's no purpose of that transformation. Therefore, there is no light in the end of the tunnel. If there is no light in the end of the tunnel, then there is no hope because we are not going anywhere, either as individuals or as a group. And then uh, this changes the paradigm. This changes the data of the, prob of the whole problem, of the whole situation completely. That's why, as I started saying two weeks ago, this story with the evolution is capital and uh, I can say anticipatively that the spiritual people and the yogis are people for whom the evolution means a lot. And you can see that for the normal person in the society, evolution doesn't mean much. You know, like how would you uh, express an evolved human being as opposed to a not so evolved human being? Why is it important that your children or the next generation or one person individually would go into evolution and evolve? Why would it be important to perfect yourself, to improve yourself and all that? And um, tonight, taking it from there, from where I have been there, speaking about evolution as being a one-way process, like if there is an evolution we can't imp imply that it's going back. I am told often by people who had studies in Hinduism and Buddhism that even high authorities in those religions, they keep on preaching these childish uh, concepts which you find in the Jataka stories of Buddhism and in the Panchatantra stories of Hinduism which are stories about uh, human beings being reborn as butterflies or 
cats or God knows what. And um, I'm always pointing to them that already at the time of W.Y. Evans Vents, a great Oxford scholar who provided us with the first translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and who worked with an eminent Tibetan, Tibetan Lama scholar, the Lama Dazi Kawa Samdup, um, this Lama, who was a great academic, not a common Lama, he explained very clearly, and you can find the same explanations taken up at a much higher academic level by a, Western, a Westerner who became a Tibetan Lama in the 50s or 60s, the famous Lama Anagarika Govinda, who wrote a groundbreaking book called Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism, where you are being told very clearly that there exists a metaphysics made on Zvadistana, which is like a Walt Disney fairy tale made for normal people, in which you use concepts like reincarnation, next life, previous life, and so on. And then there exists a metaphysics belonging to the third eye, which is very advanced and reserved to those who have done high levels of meditation, where all these concepts are disturbed terribly, because there you realize that you cannot express the evolution of spirit, spirit itself being unfathomable and impossible to define clearly. Until today we cannot demonstrate spirit in Western philosophy or society. It's still a matter of faith, if you have a soul or if you don't have a soul. And therefore, that for example, the Tibetans describe the so-called reincarnation, they describe it as a circumstances. They describe it as a causal phenomena, which means a set of circumstances. Like you live your life now, your life now emanates causes because you are doing things. Every day you are doing something, major or minor, beneficial or not so beneficial, whatever. You are doing 10 things or 100 things hundred small things and maybe ten more relevant things every day. This means that you are doing thousands of tens of thousands of things and all these things are like waves, like ripples on a pond. It's like you are pinging, pinging, pinging like a sonar. You are sending karma, you are sending vibes in the universe and when you die, so at some point you also die, and this is sort of a, a set of circumstances. And these circumstances are bouncing in our universe exactly as on a pool. The ripples would bounce off the walls and come back. And like in a pool table, you would have a billiard ball, which is shot. And then it bounces, 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 until it slows down to a stop. And all these ripples, which are causal things, they are circumstances, they are... 100 years later or 400 years later or 1,000 years later, they are grouping themselves in other ripples, like they are having what is called interference patterns in the world of science. And these interference patterns, 100 years from now, 400 years from now, or 1,000 years from now, is going to cause another person. A child in one of the five continents or how many they are on this planet, who is going to be born. Maybe not even in this world, maybe on another planet in another civilization. 
And that child that is born is the resultant of the ripples that your life has emanated. So they go even against this concept that there is something like a butterfly made of light which comes out through the top of your head when you die and it hangs out there with the dead in the world of the dead for 300 years and then it slowly descends in an embryo in the womb of a woman and it comes out as a new human being. Even this theory is considered in the high metaphysics of India and Tibet as being Svadhisthanistic, as being like a Walt Disney cartoon. It's good for people who don't have an abstract thinking because it gives them an imagery. It gives them something to relate. Aha, you should imagine that this metempsychosis process, what we call normally reincarnation or whatever you want to call it, is something like this. A butterfly goes and subsists and then it goes into another body. But again, high-level metaphysical teachings of India and Tibet, like you can read in the literature which I said, they demote it. They say that's a childish way of imagining, which can give you a simplified way of it, but there is no soul which goes like an entity that you can measure and that you can keep in your fingers or cage in some electromagnetic cage or something like this. This so-called soul is much higher than the causal influences, because it's spirit, and therefore the propagation of it is just a set of circumstances. It's cause and effects, ripples of karma of cause and effect, which bounce now, and then they group again after 250 years, and they generate the circumstances, auspicious or not, of the birth or of the generation of another human being. That's why the Buddhists going directly to this spiritual dimension they use the famous syntax which confuses spiritualists of no soul. There is no soul. And they even call the soul by the name Atma, which is a big mismatch of words, because in Hinduism, Atma means spirit and what is transcendental and immortal. But in the colloquial Hindi language, many people use Atma to say like my soul, like my psyche, my emotional personality, me, that's my soul, me. While if you say my soul is my spirit, then we're talking about something entirely different. And Buddha took a rebellion against this concept, and he said, no soul, if you think that this me, that you keep pampering every day, when you say me, 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 and how could I make that me, 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 me survives... Buddha, together with Gurdjieff and a few other sharp thinkers, they they say, you hope. It's a vain hope. It's not going to happen. This me, 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 which you love so much, is going to push the daffodils. It's going to feed the worms. It's related to your body, to your astrological sign under which you are born, and to a lot of other things, because you say, oh, I have a terrible willpower. Because now, let's say you are born in the astrological sign of the Scorpio, and you are endowed with great willpower. And in the next life, you will be born like an Aquarius or like a Gemini, and you will not have so much willpower, and you will be very airy-fairy and all over the place. So where is the famous willpower with which you are bragging 300 years ago? It's nowhere, because that was not your soul. Your soul doesn't have willpower, or your soul doesn't lack willpower. Your soul is above the concept of willpower, and the concept of willpower is added. It's plastered on your soul 
by astrological things, by DNA from your parents, by karma, by other things, and therefore it's not something permanent. Uh, this is a very delicate concept, because when we speak about evolution of the soul, we mean the soul in the spiritual part. The spirit really accumulates experience. And the soul can change a lot. Even if they cut a part of your brain, your personality and your so-called soul changes. You were a lively person, they give you a brain surgery, and you become a bit of a vegetable and grumpy. What's your soul? Gay, joyful, or grumpy and flat? So you're what we call soul is uh, the tendency is to abuse the name soul and to consider it to be our psyche, our psychism, our mind and emotions and preferences and all that. And that it will not survive. That's why Gurdjieff, who came from that area of uh, Tibetan and other Central Asian and Eastern doctrines, Gurdjieff was practicing even a sadistic, a sort of a cruel type of uh, teaching in which he said, people don't have an immortal soul. That means if tonight you die, you, what you call me, will disappear. That me that you love so much will not last. But what about the survival of something survives? But that something is so abstract, so high, so perfect, so metaphysical, so spiritual, that it's not very much related with what you call my soul, with your preferences, with the things which are dear to you, and the things which you abhor. And those are, all of them coming from the lower self, from the ego, and that ego will disappear. And Gurdjieff, for example, said, and that's why when you look for Gurdjieff in encyclopedias, they even make the joke to say materialistic philosopher from the 20th century. Gurdjieff materialistic, but he was a great spiritual teacher. Why would you call him materialistic? Because of this one thing, which Gurdjieff used more like a provocation and like a joke. Because he said, people do not have an immortal soul. Like, wake up. You don't have an immortal soul. You are just a robot. You are just an ensemble of body and other energetical mechanisms. And when this stops, everything stops. Everything which you know stops. Death is death. Death is an annihilation of everything you know. Except if you have crossed the line while you are alive by doing yoga, for example, and you have managed to know the other side. So Gurdjieff paradoxically said, humans, they don't have an immortal soul, but they can build one up. It's stupid, because of course you who are a limited being, you cannot build something which is eternal. Gurdjieff is putting it in a subjective, relative way. In a certain way, he's even making fun there is a certain part because he's challenging, he's provoking. He says, you don't have an immortal soul. So if you die, you disappear, and that's the end of it. But you can build an immortal soul, which is factually impossible, because how can a limited being build something which is unlimited? 
You cannot conceptually, but Gurdjieff nevertheless did. You can build one by activating your crown chakra, by reaching to your essential self, to your essential I. And by this, Gurdjieff says, you exist, like when you die, it will be like when you dream. Most people don't even remember that they dream. So when you dream, something survives. Something is still alive. But it's like somebody else, whom I don't really know. I disappear, and then I, in my dreams I become a butterfly. And when the butterfly dies, I become Walter again. And like the Chinese philosopher who says, then who am I? The butterfly or Walter? Who, like, which one of those two is real? Which one, which side of this reality is actually uh, the, the actual reality? And therefore, Gurdjieff, like Buddha, he is a provoker. He said most people just make it cozy to themselves. They just pamper themselves. And in this way, they find a way to sleep quiet. Because they say, well, we all have an immortal soul. And if we die, our soul will continue. And Gurdjieff says that soul is some hocus-pocus from another world that you don't even know what it is. You call it my soul, but it's not this thing which you use right now. It's not your conscious mind. It's some other side of you. So if you love this side, this side is going to go. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Because this side is doomed to die, to disappear, to be squashed. And something survives, but that something doesn't get you warmer. It doesn't give you any emotional compensation, because that side which survives is something else. Of course, things are not as black and white in the Indian yoga, because there they talk about Atman, the higher self, the lower self, and things are not black and white, like not at all, and completely 100% there. There are shades of gray, and every human being has a Certain level of consciousness. But Buddha, by saying no self, you, you are lying to yourself saying that there is an immortal soul. There isn't. But of course then Buddha says there is something eternal in the human being. And that something eternal is called the Buddha nature. Yeah, well, that's what I call Atman. I don't call Atman my ego and my psyche. I call Atman my Buddha nature. So Buddha says clearly, there is no Atma like your soul, what you call your soul. It's not going to survive, but your Buddha nature will. And in India, they don't bother, they still use the old language. And they would say, your lower self, the ego, will vanish. And the Atman, the higher self, which is something very different from what you think it may be, because you can't think what it may be, that Atman stays. Gurdjieff, to bring a new note to it and a provocation, he says, right now, you don't even have an Atman. It is as if you don't have an Atman. Because you're not connected with it. You haven't spoken to it. You haven't gone into its shoes. And therefore, if Atman survives, so what? You don't remember anything. You are born in this body. You are brainwashed. You have a blank slate. Your hard drive has been wiped clean. You just get a fresh brain and you learn things and concepts. And then when you die, it all goes down the drain. 
and you start from a certain scratch. When you are born in the next life, you are again an ignorant baby, and there are 101 things that you don't know and that you forgot. And that's what I'm trying to say here. It's very important to understand uh, this concept of the evolution and of Atman in the right way. Because this concept is very abstract. It says there is in the human being something which if you don't reach, you don't connect with it. It's a continuity of consciousness. Like you fall asleep and your consciousness breaks. And then after eight hours you mysteriously wake up. In between there has been some fuzzy stuff happening. And then you wake up and you can wonder if the one who woke up this morning is the same who went to bed last night. You know, it's like, what's the continuity of the self? I had no continuity of consciousness. I blacked out, and then somebody woke up in the morning. The same person, another person, just memory doesn't justify that it's the same person, because the person is not the memory. Memory doesn't make a person. These are all speculative arguments, but what they are trying to tell is that we are not really connected with the soul, and this idea that we are going through lives and so on, is just a sort of a soothsaying. And for example, the great teacher that was Osho Rajneesh, who was another provocative teacher, he said this idea of reincarnation has made the Indians, the Hindus, the most spiritually lazy people in the world. Because they always postpone that they are going to do something in the next life. But what if there is no next life? What if this concept is overrated? There will exist somebody being born 500 years from now who is the resultant of your causal waves. But not like a soul, not like a friend of yours, not like somebody that you sympathize with, not like your cousin or your brother or something, like an organic connection. The connection between the two is not necessarily very organic because it goes all the way through the spirit in Sahasrara, it cuts off everything and then it generates again something else, a brave new world, a brave new microcosm. That's why the Buddhists, the Zen Buddhists in Japan, they made it under the form of a beautiful dictum, which says, he who dies before dying, dies no more when dying. Like, you have to reach before your physical death, the condition of consciousness as if you were dead already, so that you can have continuity of consciousness when you die. That's what we call the art of dying, how to get out of the body, consciously and to be able to make a conscious leap in your evolution through the process of death. Therefore, uh, when we say that you know, there is a continuity like this, again, the best explanation which I have seen was in Anagarika Govinda's book, where he speaks at the level of Ajna Chakra, very beautifully, very high level of writing, and he says very clearly, it's a set of causal circumstances which bounce and ripple back and they generate another set of causal circumstances and that can be called reincarnation. Like that's, that person in the future is my consequence. 
It's my karmic consequence. And therefore, it's another me. But it's not another me related to me in this emotional lower level. Like, oh yeah, I can recognize that's my friend. I was so... There is a continuity. That continuity is at the level of the mind. It's at the level of causal influences. It's at the level of the karmic ripples. And it's not satisfying the lower emotional part. Even among you, there are people who constantly need emotional titillation. And those people, for example, are the ones who make drama. There are people who don't want drama at all. There are people who, when they go home, they watch soap operas. And there are people who, when they go home, they don't want anything like this. And people say, are you cold? Are you dead? Like, don't you feel anything? And that's the beauty of it, because these influences which propagate in time, they are influences which are not of the lower emotional type. That lower emotional type is only a consequence. It is generated karmically in the future. It's not a, there is no continuity of it. And in this way, uh, as I started earlier, Evans Vents and Lama Samdup and others, they have shown very clearly that this process of evolution of the spirit, it can very hardly go back. Because if you are a spirit that has had 2,000 lives as a human being, and then you are doing something horrible, it's, this is a very childish thing to say, if you are going to misbehave, you are going to be sent to reincarnate like a dog. But wait a second, they have, there are dogs which have princely lives. If you are the dog of Queen Elizabeth II, you live on a velvet cushion. And you have all the best a dog can have. And being a dog, you don't know that you are a dog, because that would mean consciousness. And therefore you cannot realize that now you are a dog and you lost something very great which you once had. So where is the pain? Because there are people who live in the slums and in shit and in Somalia who are every day experiencing degrees of pain and hell which are incomparably bigger than that of a dog that lives on a velvet cushion. And therefore, if people want to say, if you behave like a monster and you are a torsionist in a concentration camp and you have caused pain to 10,000 people, Punishment for that cannot be to be a dog. Because a dog can't even suffer enough for that. Even if a dog loses an eye or a leg or something, eventually it forgets and it doesn't realize that it has lost a leg or an eye. It doesn't have enough self-awareness to say, well, look at me, what a miserable life I have as a three-legged dog or something like this. It doesn't. So where is the suffering? Because it was supposed to be A punishment, a horrible punishment. But if you get born in Somalia and you get raped by 30 people and then left on the field to be eaten alive by vultures, that's more like hell. That's more like a terrible karma. And therefore, many high yogis and high lamas, 
they have said this thing that you are going to be reborn as a goat or something is just to scare illiterate peasants. And unfortunately, even today, swamis and lamas, they keep teaching these Jataka stories, this, which are made for children and for uneducated people. And subconsciously, they are like fairy tales. They generate a sort of a fear that, be careful, you'll be reborn as a goat. Oh my God, I wouldn't like to be a goat or a cockroach or something like this. No, but the cockroach doesn't know it's a cockroach. And the question is, if you have a spirit, a Buddha nature, and that spirit or that Buddha nature evolves, why would you put an evolved spirit which has experienced human condition a thousand times over and understands treason, loyalty, pleasure, frustration, a bit of love, imagination, fantasy, greed, generosity, a soul which already has polished some sides and is more complex, you put it into an animal which has a brain as big as this, and that brain can't even express a hundredth part of the emotions and of the concepts which exist in that spirit. The brain which is a downlink or an uplink, and the satellite to which it links is the mental body and the spirit, that brain is just filtering everything, And the brain of the dog or something just wants food, shelter, security. That's about it. Some loyalty of some sort and so on. Of course, I'm simplifying and I'm oversimplifying things on purpose. That's why great thinkers have said when a soul really has a bad karma, then the soul has a richness already. And it's a waste of its richness if... 55 of its emotional and mental qualities are cut off because the brain of the creature where that soul is attached cannot express them in the daily life. And thus, generally the high-level metaphysicians, they tell us that this evolution is a one-way process. It's very improbable, it's very seldom that a soul will turn back for a very limited time to some animal condition. It doesn't serve any purpose. How will the soul, that spirit, how will it evolve through that? If that's a sort of a karmic punishment, how will the soul evolve through that? What will the soul get out of that? Exception made of a very big frustration. But you know you can get a very big frustration if somebody, when you are 11 years old, you are punished with all your family because your father spoke against the king, and then they throw you in a dungeon where you can just crawl on your knees and you can never stand up, and they forget the key from that dungeon, and you stay there for the next 55 years like an animal in the dark, crawling. That's frustration. And you still have a human body, and then you can experience a horrible ordeal. Like if you really have a bad karma, you don't need to be a dog. It's much better expressed in a human brain where you can take it like a human being and continue polishing your diamond. Although this time it's hell and you are polishing it in a very, very painful way. So, this continues with the ideas and I don't want to insist too much. I already said a few of these things in the end of uh, two weeks ago, satsang. But I didn't go into details at that time. I felt that I made a bit of a hasty end to that uh, satsang. 
and uh, I felt that I needed to spell out some of these things because I still want to focus on this process of evolution to see where does karma come in this process and where is the other end of the process. So we also said that up to a certain point, and I drew there just a sketchy wheel of Dharma, according to the Buddhist way of thinking, where I showed the spirit coming from 12 o'clock position of the clock, and going through mineral, vegetal, animal life stages, and eventually becoming human, which is a turning point, but still, it's not the final point on that circle, on that wheel of Dharma. And I'll get back to that in a second because that's one of the things which I felt I wanted to emphasize. But these, uh, this process of evolution at the level of the human beings has this quality of being automatic or deliberate. And that's very important for us in a yoga school because the human being has a certain degree of evolution you have your own degree of evolution. I suspect, and I can see therefore, that many of you have a higher than average degree of evolution, because the people who don't, they don't come to a yoga school, and they find this kind of thing very boring. It's much more thrilling to go and play bowling, or to go and get drunk in a pub, or watch a football match from the European Championship or something, because that produces you a pleasure, a fun, while this is, to a certain extent, boring, while some people would never give this for a football match or for something like this, because for them this is extremely relevant and it rings a bell, and it means an information that you can process and an information that you can use. And you'll make something out of it and it clarifies your spirit. <clears throat> and all any other form of entertainment is just anecdotal and circumstantial. And of course you can have fun here and there, but not at the price of something which is meaningful for you. And that simply says... If you don't make any effort, you evolve. As I said not long time ago, there is a beautiful example of this in Mahabharata, when Yudhishthira, the wisest of the five brothers, is subjected to a test of spirituality. And in this test of spirituality, he is being asked, last question actually, is what is inevitable? And as I said the other time, in America, apparently the only inevitable things are tax, death and taxes. Well, for Yudhishthira 4,000 years ago, what was inevitable was happiness. What did he mean by happiness? By happiness, he meant the Sanskrit word ananda, which actually doesn't mean daily life happiness. It means beatitude and bliss. It means ecstasy resulting from the state of samadhi and from the state of spiritual realization. So Yudhishthira says it very clearly. Wherever you are, either you are in hell or in paradise right now, you are on that wheel. 
and that wheel spins with you. It's like you are on a carousel, on a merry-go-round. It's exactly like you are on a river which goes in a circle and that river flows. So if you are staying here and saying, Swami, I think all these concepts of yours with evolution are irritating and I don't want to go into this. I just want to just stay and watch the sunset. The river is still flowing. There exists a sort of default evolution. Like there is a movement of the carousel or of the river which is automatic. Even when you sit like this and stomp your feet and say, I'm going to do nothing, and I'm not even a religious person, I'm not a spiritual person, I don't want to hear, I'm just breathing, I'm just converting oxygen into carbon dioxide, that's all I want to do. Even then, you're moving on that river. That river doesn't stop. This force of automatic evolution in the Hindian Tantra is called the energy of the void, and it's the terrible inertia of the cosmic power called Dumavati. Like, even when you don't do anything, Dumavati still pushes you. The river is still flowing. And this gives the wrong impression to some people that then you could as well not do anything because God has taken care of it already. But the downside to that, there is that, as Yogananda says, the process from now, if you are an average soul, Average means that you have had a few thousand lifetimes. And if you have that, Yogananda says if, you, if every life cycle takes about 400 years, that's what Tibetan astrology says, a life and a death takes about 420 years, like 7 times 60 years, the calendar, the Tibetan calendar, then 3,000 lifetimes or 2,000 lifetimes to come can mean approximately a million years. A million years is a heck of a long time. And many people say, you try to tell me that theoretically I could be a child and a teenager and forgetful and confused and trying to find out who I am and what I do and suppressed by the society, by the school, by the family and never finding my way and sometimes being unhappy and sometimes being happy and all that and this will continue for a million years? Like, it's a bit much. If I would tell you that your spiritual evolution would, would take another 40 years, some of you are not even 40 years old. You don't even know what 40 years means. People say, don't you have a weekend workshop to reach Samadhi? You know, like two days and a half, couldn't it be enough? You know, like, waiting, you know, in India, they said you should stay by a guru for 12 years. 12 years? Are you kidding me? Try to look back in your life what was happening 12 years ago and how much water has been flowing under the bridge since that day. Are you able to wait for this much water under the bridge to go on? Even 12 years sounds unbearable for impatient people. But a million years... It's almost an abstract number, you know, it's like, it's, it means like never. So, the downside of this theory that we evolve anyway, so why do anything, is that it's going to take a hell of a long and boring time, repeating, running in a circle and repeating the same stages of life endlessly, 
it's like Groundhog Day. You know, it just comes again and again, and it ends by getting you desperate. And during those times, evolution is very painful, because evolution, Buddha says, evolution is like you are moving uphill. And when you let go and you betray yourself, it's like you are rolling down downhill. It's very easy to go downhill. You just let go. It's very, it takes effort to go uphill. Jesus doesn't call it an uphill and a downhill. Jesus says there is a narrow road which leads to perfection. And there is a wide and easy road which leads to perdition. Which simply says to defeat entropy, because that's what evolution is, is going against entropy. To defeat entropy, you have to make a coherent effort about yourself. And that coherent effort, if you don't do it, it cannot be replaced by anything. For example, Buddha says that the sign of an evolved human being is compassion and loving kindness. That's how you are evolved. If you are a bodhisattva, there is a large amount of compassion and a large amount of loving kindness in your heart. Therefore, how do you get that? Let's take any virtue, generosity, humbleness, loving kindness, and let's say that your friend or uncle or cousin, Walter, doesn't have those qualities. And Walter is scheduled to become generous, to become humble. But he's not here. And he is not in a Christian monastery. And he is not in a Zen Buddhist temple. He's nowhere. He's in a pub. And nature says that he's supposed to become kind, loving, generous, and humble. How do you think? You know, it's like there are people, Russians and British, have gone to Marsilia and they've been fighting on the streets like idiots in the European Championships of Football. It's known, I have known such people, and it's known by the psychologists. People, the British hooligans, they go to football for the sake of fighting. They don't go to look at football. They just want to get drunk and get blue eyes. That's the pleasure. They have violence and aggression in them, and you cannot fulfill it at your job. So once a week you get drunk and you beat with somebody and take teeth out and they take teeth out of you and then you come home and you say, ah, what a weekend this was. No? Simply because you are an animal who wants to pull other people's teeth out and want other people to pull your teeth out. No? So how do you do with that person to become generous and humble? And you know, you can send all the preachers, you can send Mother Teresa going and telling them, my dear, it's time for you to become compassionate. Back off! No? Where is the compassion? Well, they don't even consider trying. They consider... So, how do you think that nature takes a person that is full of arrogance and vanity and make them humble? How do you think that nature takes a person that is greedy and makes them generous? 
by an instrument which resembles with a schnitzel mallet in the kitchen. No, they simply put them on the wooden thing and they start bang, 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 bang. That's how you make a schnitzel soft. Yeah? It's a very non-vegetarian example that I'm giving here. No? So, uh, how do you think you are going to get... Look around what's happening. War, epidemics, revolution, incurable diseases, apparently incurable. They are not incurable, but they are incurable because they have to be incurable for many people. No? So that they learn some lesson. Which means, when people do not evolve consciously, they evolve by force. In Romania, we have a proverb, which I think is translated in other languages as well, or imported from other languages as well, which says, every kick in the ass, nevertheless, means a step forward. Like, if somebody kicks you hard in the ass, it pushes you 10 centimeters forward by the power of the kick. Of course, your ass turns blue, and it's painful. But hey, you've made 10 centimeters of progress. Which means, when you don't make progress by your own effort, the universe is compelled to force you to do that universe. Question, couldn't the universe let me just be? No, because you haven't chosen to be born in this world. You haven't created your body and your karma You haven't decided about evolution. You are just a victim. You are a sheep in a herd of sheep that is corralled, that is moved from point A to point B. And you don't don't get to vote. You don't get to choose. You can't make a choice. Somebody has already made that choice for you. And therefore, that's why Buddha says, and that's where karma is coming, you'll see, we are not free. We are not free because evolution is imposed on us. It's like walk or die. You know, there is no choice. Keep walking. Go forward. And that's why I'm telling you that the story of this automatic evolution, because I've heard New Age teachers and even uh, some famous teachers were promoting this absurdity. Metaphysically, it's an absurdity. That just watch the sunset, smile, I trust completely in existence and in life, uh, evolution continues. Yes, but extremely slowly, it will take a boring number of centuries before it will happen. And meanwhile, you will be in soap opera after soap opera. You will be in a roller coaster. Your children will die. You will have cancer and die agonizingly. You will be unhappy. You will lose everything. You will be now rich, now poor, now weak, now strong. Like the roller coaster which has to teach you virtues. Because in the end of this one million years, Kali has promised to make you generous, virtuous, humble, noble, loving, compassionate, And you cannot harden the steel. You cannot obtain a samurai sword without hammering it for weeks in a row, millions of times. Therefore, the human soul and the human being, which wraps the soul, needs to be hammered. If it doesn't comply by itself. 
I give multiple analogies to this, and I'm one of them which I like is that one of the herd of sheep that when a shepherd moves a herd of sheep, he uses dogs which are barking and hunt chasing them, and sometimes he has a stick and hits them, and sometimes he's thrown stones at them when some when when do the dogs bark and the stick come? When you are behind the herd. The sheep which are up front, they never see the stick. They never get stones thrown at them. And the dogs have nothing against those. Which means the forces of evolution in this universe are addressing the stagnant people. The lazy ones. The inert ones have to be goaded constantly by mother nature. And that goading hurts. That's why I am transmitting to you the message of wisdom. I didn't discover this thing. I heard it from the sages of yoga and I totally concur to it. It's, I'm on the same page. The sages of yoga have said since evolution is not a choice and since you are on a river which goes somewhere, then why should you constantly be the one who stands against everything, and get the whip, and get the stones. Why shouldn't you intelligently surrender, realize that there is no choice, that you are fighting with your own shadow, that there is nobody to fight with, there is no authority which you can defeat in any way, and then simply surrender and go with the process. And if I simply say, you know, it's like you guys are teaching me something, by which eventually you are going to teach me to walk on fire. And for this fire walking thing, you are taking three weeks. But hey, there are people in Europe who do it in, on Sunday, in just one day. Like, can you give me the fire walking in three hours? I don't need a whole month to learn fire walking. Since you are telling me that all this class is about fire walking, then why should I wait for a month? Because you are just wasting my time. The whole thing is fire walking. So let's get to the fire walking. If the evolution has a target, let's get to the target as soon as possible. Like why do we want to keep it slow and boring and waiting and going in circles like this? This is... The result of evolution, like yogis have said, okay, since evolution can be painful and last a long time, why shouldn't we just get ahead of that process right now? And this is, this is a condition of wisdom, of self-awareness. Like cows cannot change the speed of their evolution. Say, I think if I moo twice as much, I'm going to die twice as fast. And therefore, I'm going to be a cow only for 10 years instead of 20. I can finish my bovine existence in 10 years. How? By just mooing twice as much every day. But a cow never takes that decision. A cow doesn't realize that he or she is in an existence, and that existence has to be finished, and then you go in another form of existence or something. Therefore, 
we have not noticed any attempt of cows or dolphins or elephants or chimpanzees or rainworms that try to accelerate their development, to shorten the stages, to skip some stages, to cut some corners, to accelerate some process. There isn't. Only human beings do that. Because for human beings, the intelligence and the self-awareness allows them to draw a conclusion. It's a logical conclusion, and I could stay and explain it to you again and again. And I'm sure some of you got it already, and some of you are still dwelling on it. But the point of this is that most people don't even want to hear about this. And if they hear, they want to forget quickly about this. Like most people, when you ask them, did you hear about this? What did you do in the next 10 years after you heard about this? For many, the honest answer is, I tried to forget as quick as possible about it and live my life into forgetfulness. When you look at the statue of Shiva, Shiva is holding his foot, his right foot, on a creep, on a demon, which looks like a rat. It's like a a fat little demon under the foot of Shiva. In the south of India, in Tamil Nadu, that's called Apasmara Purusha. Mara, like Mara of Buddha, and this is Apasmara, Apas, like the water, Mara, the Mara of the water, Purusha, spirit. So it's the, and it is called, by the definition of Heinrich Zimmer, is the demon called forgetfulness. That's what Shiva is crushing under his foot. The demon which is persecuting this whole mankind. And this demon is called forgetfulness. Because to realize that you inevitably are going to become a Buddha, that you are going towards happiness, as Yudhishthira said, that you are forced to evolve, it's not your choice. The universe has put you through the meat grinder and you will be a graduate when you finish this meat grinder. Either you like it or not, either you want it or not. And to know this truth and to act accordingly, this is wisdom. And everybody else says, let's not even think about that. I better drink and lose my mind. Forget about the whole thing. Humanity is in a constant process of forgetfulness. And many spiritual methods are just methods of remembrance. Like remember, remember, memento mori, remember death, remember who you are, who am I. All these awareness methods of the Buddhists and so on, which the mind hates so much. What does your mind do when you are in a meditation retreat or when you try to do awareness? Your mind starts playing frisbee with you. Your mind starts playing fetch with you. Your mind is launching all sorts of exciting ideas. What about this? And then in the middle of meditation and awareness, you drop the awareness and you say, yeah, 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 yeah. What about this? What a great idea. And you go on masturbating your mind for 30 minutes. And then you come back and you say, oh, shucks, uh, I was supposed to focus on my breath. And meanwhile, I've been daydreaming about some castle in Spain or something, you know. This is the mind. The demon called forgetfulness. Always forget about who you are. Always forget about what's going to happen. Always forget about the process and the homework. And constantly lose yourself into drifting 
and daydreaming. Humanity is constantly conceiving this. Even Nero and Machiavelli said that to rule people, you need to give them bread and circus. Bread, which means survival. Like most people have this survival paranoia. I will not have food to put on my table tomorrow and not have a roof over my head. And then beyond that, what comes? Circus. 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 The whole Roman Empire was going with the Colosseum and games. Games, games, games offered to the mob to keep them busy. If you give them the European championship in football, then they don't think. They drink beer and they have circus. And then after it's finished, for three months they will talk about what did Ronaldo do. They live the life of Ronaldo. They don't live their own life. They have idols and they dream those idols. Instead of saying, wait a second, but who am I? What am I doing in this body, in this world? No. Dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. Keeping busy. There are people in this island who become rich relatively to Thai standards by tourism, by your money. And they play poker. Hundreds of thousands of baht per night they lose in poker games. They buy themselves gold chains and so on, which they lose. They lose them in cockfights, in bullfights. Why? Because people need to constantly entertain themselves. Why do people entertain themselves? Because they don't have the courage to lock themselves in a room for 10 years and to say, I don't get out of here before I know who I am. That's the mind is horrified by this. When the fathers of the desert did this spiritual process, they, one of their tapases was to stay in a room with no icons, no books, no nothing, just a whitewashed room, locked there as many hours per day as possible. And the phenomenon which came from it was called akedia or boredom. Like you stay, how much you can pray. How, and then you start banging your head against the wall. I want to go to a movie. I want to talk to people. I want, that's just a distraction. That's a distraction. If you really want to get ahead of the game. If you really want. So very few people. This conclusion is a painfully lucid. Is a painfully sharp discriminative conclusion. Which everybody knows. But very few people have the power to live by it. Most people choose to brush it under the carpet. Because it's very uncomfortable to look in the eyes of that truth. The eyes of the, that truth simply says, don't waste time. You have a project and the project is happiness. You are meant to reach nirvana. You are meant to reach ananda. You are meant to reach bliss and beatitude. And you are meant to reach cosmic consciousness. That's the end of this adventure. You know the end of the novel. The end of the movie. Why waste time? Till you reach there. But that's exactly where it goes. There are many people in this yoga school. Who know it. And of course they still waste time. Not black and white. 20%. 50%. 80%. Depending. And then you have somebody like Milarepa. Who goes in a cave for 30 years. Because he killed 35 people. And he's afraid he's going to hell. So he's really motivated. He has a big stick behind him, coming, and then Milarepa doesn't 
give himself any divertisement. Milarepa doesn't have time for 50% spiritual practice and 50% break, rest and recovery or whatever you call it, rest and recreation. No, Milarepa goes 100% into work, into spiritual work, because he is scared of hell. Thus, this process, uh, again, human beings can transform this process of evolution into deliberate. If you don't do anything, it is automatic. If you wake up in the morning and take a mala and repeat Om Namah Shivaya 108 times, Namaste, Namaste, Shivaji, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Namaste, Namaste, Shivaji, thank you. I've done my spiritual practice for today. Took about 25 minutes. How much did that accelerate my spiritual evolution? It did accelerate. The fact that I do 20 minutes of spiritual practice, it does accelerate my spiritual evolution. I'm not one of those who is lagging behind anymore. Compared with those that are dragging their feet, at least I do something. What if I'm a Muslim and five times per day... I stop for 10-15 minutes, put a carpet, and pray to Allah. Turn to Mecca and pray to Allah. Five times 15 minutes, it makes 75 minutes of practice, of, of prayer per day. Of course, the people who are possessed mentally, manipulated, influenced by demons, they hate it when they see it. Karl Marx said, when I hear the bells of the church is ringing. It's like a dark fog is descending on my brain. And I feel that I want to scream and break and destroy around me. You know, this reaction is the reaction of a demonized man. Karl Marx was an antichrist in his brain. His reactions are not normal, loving, compassionate, luminous, evolved reactions. These reactions of madness and hate against somebody who does religion, which are happening so much. In Zen monasteries, the most industrious monks were the most persecuted. Like all the lazy bums who were just eating free food and having free room in the monastery, they hated those who did 10 hours of meditation per day. Why? Because somebody who does 10 hours of meditation per day is a finger pointed at you, which says, look, it's possible, and you are not doing it. So you have no aspiration, and you are actually a lazy bum. And then the most easy thing is not to transform yourself into a person full of Ishvara Pranidana. The most easy thing is to kill the bastard, which puts you to shame, and then there is nobody in front of whom you look bad. So... What I'm trying to say, deviating a lot from this, is that you can accelerate evolution by various processes. And sometimes when some people accelerate evolution, it's like there, is, there are obstacles. Like the other people don't like to see you going faster than them. Getting, you no, know, instinctively, there is a sort of a sheep-like herd mentality. No, 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 stay, 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 don't, not so much. It's like we, we have it here. Sometimes it happens in couples. In a couple, in a tantric couple, one of the two 
makes yoga and meditation a lot, and the other one finds always pretexts for not doing it. And they can feel it. The friction is very strong, because one of the two feels like I'm doing yoga for both. Like every time in the morning I wake up, and the other person says, why don't we continue the movie which we interrupted last night? And this other one says, no, I, it's my time for my morning yoga session. Forget about the movie. It costs you. It's very difficult. It's like you have, it's painful almost. Because of course you are a human being and your monkey mind has its own temptations and you have desires and you can see it always. This always happens that some people want to do more than others and that's why the yoga tradition even invented the thing. It simply said when you are doing so much practice, zip it. Talk only with your guru about it. Because they know you are going to have counter-reactions from others who on the front are going to say, now really, you are in Agama and you are doing eight hours of practice. How nice. But in the back their mind says, what a shithead I am. I am not doing eight hours of practice. How bad that makes me feel. Fuck you eventually. You know, it's like, it goes that way. So, accelerating evolution is what we are trying to do with the spiritual practice. And with, you know, even participating in India and in Tibet, they say even participating to a satsang will accelerate your evolution because there is some grace which comes through your spiritual teacher. Is the whole school here in satsang? Most of them have come here 10,000 kilometers about to be here. They are spending money every month renting a bungalow. This is not a place where most people have 24-hour jobs. Or, uh, you know, there are not many nightclubs and funny ones, at least sweet ones or something. It's like there are no shopping malls. There are no cinemas. Then the question is the people who are not tonight here, where the fuck are they? Why the heck did they come to Kopangan? It doesn't offend me that they are not here. Last two, two nights ago, I was at the Q&A. There were about 12 people. I spoke with great passion to those 12 people. doesn't matter if you are 12 or 120. But the question is, for a teacher, this is the process of evolution. Like people say, I want to evolve. Really? How does it manifest? Like, through what does it become manifest? What are the instruments which you actually use so it's not just lip service? At least in the Christian monasteries, they have two lifestyles. The idiosyncratic, the individualistic, and the group one. And it's very risky for the monasteries in Christianity that have this idiosyncratic, which in their meaning, it doesn't mean exactly idiosyncratic in English, it means a sort of individual. Because when you have a monastery which has a collective style, then for example there is a rule. Every time when you eat, you shut up, you don't talk during the meal, and somebody is reading religious texts. In the beginning of the meal, everybody stands up and makes a consecration and a prayer to God. They eat in silence 
listening to religious stories. When they finish, they stand up, they make a prayer, then they go in silence to their rooms. Six times per day, including at midnight, one of them, there is religious service. Like you go into the church and it lasts at least 45 minutes, one hour. The morning mass lasts two hours and 20 minutes or two hours and a half. So when you sum up all those religious services, they are more than eight hours per day. Like an honest monk in a collective monastery stays in church more than eight hours per day, assisting passively at all the mass and prayers which are being done there. But meanwhile, he cannot do Sudoku, he cannot poke his nose, he cannot masturbate, he cannot, he has to stand there and listen to it in a vertical position, in some position there. So this is the deal of the collective monastery practice. It forces you to do a minimal amount of something. Even the most lazy bum is goaded by the abbot at six o'clock in the morning, up, 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 the day is starting, the program is starting. Get to the program. You hate it or not, you will stand in church for eight, nine, ten hours per day. You will eat in peace and in a spiritual thing. You go to your room, there anyway, you are supposed not to have alcohol, not to have all sorts, not to have Playboy magazines, not to have other things. So presumably, you are living in a soil. It forces you. It's like an enforced spiritual practice. When you go into the individualistic monasteries, there it says, eight hours per day in church is a joke. It's nothing. I can do the prayer of the heart ten hours per day. So going to church is like a diluted spirituality. I can do better. But the question is, will you? What if you promise that you will do, and then you just take a package of cards and play whatever, this divination game on computer? What's it called? Hearts or whatever it's called. You know? What if all day long you are doing dumb things, pretending that you are having an individual spiritual practice, and actually you don't. You are wasting your time. That is why, remember that here, there is a very difficult thing. Because when people are pushed into too much, then the opposites appear. There is opposition. In Romania, we have another proverb from Christian environment, which says, all the devils and demons have run into the monasteries. Because that's where men and women push their limits, They try to do some religious process to accelerate their evolution. And then the temptation and the opposition and all the demonized people who try to kind of pull you back, it's much more. You don't know what a hell exists in monasteries, in ashrams, in Zen dojos and places like this. Precisely because some people are pulling really hard. And some people are becoming angry, grudgy, resentful of that because of envy, because of not being able to live in the shoes of the champions. And then instead of acknowledging, like, I'm defeated, I am not good, they go and fight against it. Every time when you try to put 
one of my good friends teaching spirituality was making people doing retreats of 10 days, 20 days, 40 days, and so on. And I told him, many people are going to leave you. They admire you now because they say, wow, what a great yogi this guy is. And then when the demon is going to become too strong, they are just going to run ugly, doing nasty things. That's exactly what happened very often. No? Because people can be pushed only from inside. It's only their own aspiration which talks. I could give you so many examples, but the point is that this deliberate evolution can be slower or faster. Like if any one of you decides to accelerate your evolution, can you do 75 minutes of Muslim prayer per day? Or can you do four to six hours of Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, Raja Yoga per day? It's a big difference. So the question is, how far would you push it? How far does this inner limitation allow you to go? What is your strength? What is the power of your soul? What is the Ishvara Pranidhana which makes your soul fly? I have been in yoga for all these years and I have seen the ups and downs of it. I had times when I was doing minimum 8 to 10 hours of Hatha Yoga and direct spiritual practice per day. And outside of those 10 hours, I had 2, 3, 4 hours per day where I was in touch with my guru and I was having spiritual talks and things like this and reading and questions and answers and experiments. Like let's make a meditation on the heart chakra showing this aspect. Yes, like on top of those 8 to 10 hours, I had periods when I did that and I know exactly how it felt. And I also had periods where I could not do one minute of yoga per day. One minute. I basically spend my day, after having done 10-12 hours, I spend my day just dilly-dallying and procrastinating. If when I looked openly and sincerely in my mind, I was postponing. There was like a devil in my head which made me postpone, 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 postpone. And then I was too late and I had to sleep. And when I woke up next morning, I started postponing again. Therefore, the question is, how much do you really want it? That's where it all starts from. You want to wait another million years? Don't feel shy. No, it's like ultimately it's your choice. I'm telling you that Shankaracharya, as an example, Abhinava Gupta and others, they said it sucks to go the slow way. It's not wise. But ultimately, when you look around yourselves, approximately 99.9% of the people are going at the average speed. Krishna tells to Arjuna 4,000, 3,000, whatever, years ago, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Mahabharata, he says, Arjuna, out of a thousand people, actually he says, out of thousands of people, which is even worse, one is ready to do something concrete for their spiritual evolution. So if the spiritual practitioners are one in a thousand, that means 0.1% of the society. It's smaller than the homosexual community or than other minorities. The spiritual minority 
is really, really slow. Yes, there are a lot of religious people who profess belief in God. There are many people who respect Buddha, and the first thing which they do is they go and eat pork. How does slaughtering pigs and eating them fit with the concept of universal loving kindness and compassion? When actually you could live without pork. Let's say you don't believe in vegetarianism, but could you live only with fish and chicken and leave the cows and the pigs and the goats alone? Yes, you could. Definitely you could. Even those who don't believe in vegetarianism. So then why doesn't this whole planet at least refrain from killing mammals? At least that much. Red meat. Stay away from the red meat. Why at least that much? (coughs) Out of loving kindness and compassion. Then you don't even have to be a vegetarian. (coughs) But no. It doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen in Buddhist countries. And it doesn't happen in Christian countries. Because most people pretend that they are Buddhist and Christian. But they don't give a rat's ass on the principles. On taking those principles to their logical conclusion. And that's why (coughs) even this evolution which is deliberate is slow or fast. And it's one thing for you to decide... I take responsibility over my own evolution. I don't need to be whipped by Kali on my bottom. I can do my own evolution by my own sweet will, by my own accord. And two, it is also you who decide how much you speed, how much you press the gas pedal. How much are you ready to do for this? Are you ready to do what Milarepa did? Well, if not, then how much? A half, a quarter, a tenth? A hundred part of it. How much? These are issues which come with this process of deliberate evolution, which can be slow or fast, and which justifies the methods of spiritual evolution. For example, in India they say, you will evolve if you do Japa Yoga with a mantra. That's great yogis. I'm quoting to you now from Swami Shivananda and other eminent yogis. And they say, quoting Shastras, not they didn't invent it, there is a tradition. And Swami Shivananda quoting Shastras says, if you do Japa Yoga with a devotional mantra, it may take even ten lifetimes before you reach enlightenment. Like you take a mala and you start going, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah. I don't want to criticize Om Namah Shivaya, it's beautiful. And I use it often. But just to do only that, Swami Shivananda and the people before him, they say it's too little. You are driving your cart very slowly. Very slowly. It will take a hell of a long time. Not a million years, but it may take a thousand or ten thousand. So it's still a bit longish. And Paramahamsa Yogananda says, if you do Kriya Yoga eight hours per day, You can reach a state of samadhi if you are an average person without special psychic, mental, emotional or physical problems. So the average person who is okay-ish, it will take you three years. Three years is better than 10,000. That means that there are methods of spiritual practice which are accelerated, which are much faster. That's what we're talking about. 
One of the things which I wanted to mention clearly to conclude this and then to be able to draw some conclusions on karma from the perspective of all this, it will come up a little bit even tonight, but I don't want to stay too late. We started late, but um, so I'm beginning it and I'll continue with it in the next satsang. Is that evolution doesn't stop at the human stage, which means if you evolve more than a certain level, you will not you will be too much to be born as a human being. And that means the resonance, the causal ripples will make that your next life, whatever we want to call it, because it doesn't need to be a physical thing, it would mean that your next life is something else. Human beings can become superhuman. For example, the ancient Greeks spoke about gods and demigods, like Zeus and Hera, and demigods like Heracles and so on, like people that have become more than humans, and some of them quite advanced. There exists a very beautiful spiritual book written by a Danish writer called Gjellerup, and Carl Gjellerup wrote a book called Kamanita the Pilgrim, or the Pilgrim Kamanita. If you have spiritual inclinations, together with Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha, and together with Mircea Eliade's The Secret of Dr. Honigberger, this novel called Kamanita the Pilgrim, it will make great reading. Instead of reading some Barbara Cartland emotional nonsense, read Kamanita the Pilgrim, and it will give you some compass. It's, it will be clarifying your mind. And what does Kamanita the Pilgrim, who is a Buddhist practitioner, what does he find out? He finds out that you can surpass the human condition and you can become, as soon as you die, you can become a deity. I avoid to use the word God because God in Christianity and in the monotheistic religions means the one God who is like a God to the deities. Exactly like Shiva in India is called Deva Deva. Deva to the Devas. As the Devas are to the human beings, so is Shiva to the Devas. The Deva of the Devas. So, I, the word God, I don't use it. I prefer to use the word Deity. And that simply says, they are mentioned in literature and in esotericism and in metaphysics, forms of existence which are superhuman. Some of them very close and very approachable. For example, the Tibetan yogis had the tradition that if some yogis go celibate, it's a condition, you have to go celibate, and if you practice certain techniques in parallel with that, you are going to be visited in your night in, and in your dreams and in your meditation by Dakinis. Dakinis being female deities that know everything about yoga, they are like yoga encyclopedias. They can teach you any yoga technique. You don't need a guru for that. That Dakini becomes like your guru. She's like your Wikipedia. And those Dakinis can start a relationship with you. You can start having a love story and even astral sex in the night with a goddess, with a deity, with a female deity who gives you knowledge and expect from you 
commitment, seriousness in the practice, and purity, and a few other things. So these things, don't think I'm talking, because in the Greek mythology, you seldom find this interaction. But when you go to the Tibetan yogis or others, it's there all the time. And therefore, it's not so far from the human beings. There are entities, spirits, with which you interact. And some of them are subhuman, and some of them are superhuman. The best example in Agama, for beginners, is, of course, the sun salutations. What do you do when you do sun salutations? You make friends with the sun. Who is the sun? The sun is a deva. The sun is called in Sanskrit, Surya Deva. And he has 12 names, Aditi and all those which you know from the sun salutations. And the sun is a deity. Gelarup in Kamanita, quoting the Buddhist scripture, says, when Kamanita reached that level of evolution, he was given this proposal, that he could become the enlivening spirit of a new young sun and of a solar system. Therefore, like our sun, Surya Deva, comes from somewhere as spirit. That entity, that deity, has a past. So it's legitimate to ask yourself, Surya Deva has been with this ball of fire for 10 billion years and will be with it another 10 billion years, but what was Surya Deva before? Where was Surya Deva 20 billion years ago? Of course, scientifically, we can't answer that question. But in Buddhist metaphysics, they say Surya Deva was a spirit incarnated on a planet, probably in another solar system because this one was not yet existing. And in that solar system, Surya Deva reached to be a deity. There is a beautiful um, documentary made by BBC, which is called Dragons of the Kung Fu, or something like this, many years ago, some 20 years ago. And in this documentary, they present some of the crazy martial artists and masters of Taoism and other things from China. When China opened 25, 30 years ago, they made this documentary, not, not long after. And there, there is a guy, I forgot his name even. There is a guy, and when they show him and his life, it's like you can't imagine. That guy is like 60 years old, has a white Taoistic, a big Taoistic beard. He's an old man, and he is practicing martial arts and Taoism, big time, like physically. He's practicing about 8, 10, 12 hours per day, being 60 years old. And being very masterly. And they ask him. Like you've been practicing this martial arts and Taoist uh, things. For a lifetime. And now you are 60 years old. And you still practice them big time. So what do you hope to get from it? And his answer is jaw dropping. He says I want to become a deity, a god. And so that when I die, people will worship me. So simple. he says it very straight. I can stop being a human and I can become a deity. I can move to the next level. So there is a next level. Humanity is not your beginning. You haven't always been human. 
And humanity is not the end. You can't be human forever. That's why sometimes praising humanity is an evolutionary factor. Like, hey, we are not animals. We don't just beat each other and do like, we are human. We have conscience and consciousness. Wake up. So sometimes we praise the human condition. And that's an evolutionary impulse. And sometimes we hide behind the human condition and we say, uh, we are just human. What do you want from us? I don't want anything. But Kali and God, they want you to become superhuman. Sooner, better than later. And to become superhuman is not the end. You can become super, superhuman. And super, super, superhuman. And where does this go? According to the Buddhist mentality, it goes to nirvana, to Buddhahood. Like this process, this circle is closed in a way with the state of nirvana, with the state of Buddha. Before you reach that, when you are at 95% from Buddhahood, which is like 12 o'clock position there, you are called a bodhisattva, a Buddha to be. In this life, in the next life, in three, four lifetimes, you will be full-on Buddha. When you are almost a Buddha, it means your diamond is polished almost to perfection, and you are a Bodhisattva. So, there is a graduation. Hindus call this graduation Moksha or Mukti, which is translated in European languages by the word liberation. While the Buddhists call it enlightenment, Bodha, like Buddha, Buddha is the enlightened one. The Hindus call it moksha, as liberation. And that's why this is the story that this evolution process goes on. It's not only about being human. Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra, and this is written in a commentary, not written by Patanjali, but written by Veda Vyasa, Patanjali even writes that when you reach a certain level of evolution, the deities, like the sun god and others, they will come and greet you. You will have meditations in which you will feel like, whoa. It's very beautifully represented in the spiritual movie, which we once played to our cinema club and to the first level students, but somehow we lost that good habit and we don't have a cinema club in this school, and we are trying to reopen it now. So if any one of you wants to be part of that project, please help Sarah and the other people who want to do something about that project. And this, in this movie, there is a splendid movie made by Alexandro Jodorowsky in the 1970s, which is called The Holy Mountain. And on The Holy Mountain, the people who are climbing The Holy Mountain, they reach to a Mount Olympus bar, and there there are gods, there are people with paranormal powers, siddhas of all sorts and so on, and they come and say, come enjoy. You have climbed all the way to here, now you have a great view, and you can enjoy a lot of benefits. And the question is, is this the top of the mountain? No. So Patanjali says, don't fall for it. Patanjali even warns his readers. He says, if you do a lot of yoga, at some point the gods from the paradises, from Devachan, from the world of the devas, will come and tempt you 
to become one of them, to stay at that level, because you've reached the level of consciousness of gods. And he says the real yogi won't even stop for it, won't even stop for a second, because there is something even bigger than that. The circle is not finished when you become a deity. So if you got the momentum, then don't stop at that level. There was a guy who in the holy mountain, there's a guy who says, I can cross this mountain from any point to any point. And then the, the practitioners, that team of pupils, ask him, but can you go up? And he's lost. You know, because he never conceived that you can go further up. He can just go horizontally. He says, no, I'm a champion of the horizontal. Well, bye-bye. You know, it's like, it's not good enough for us. So that's why, uh, for some yogis, I, I witnessed a uh, yoga teacher... There was a girl who was my senior in yoga with two years and she was meditating with this yoga teacher and every time when she was meditating she was falling in a special state of consciousness. She was going into a very peculiar state. And she enjoyed it. It was very nice. But it was also a bit odd and it was not the real thing. Like, And she kept doing and then the teacher said you shouldn't do that. It's like it's, it's good, it's not bad, but it's not what you're looking for. So stop doing that. Search for something else. And this girl stubbornly kept on doing the same thing. And then one day, this yoga teacher told her, if you will continue to meditate this way, when you die, you will be reborn as a goddess. But you'll not be a Buddha, a female Buddha. You will be a goddess. Because this door... This kind of meditation takes you to a divine condition, to a deity-like condition. Therefore, it is known in yoga, like this Taoist master from China, who said, I'm practicing every day so that when I die, I turn into a deity and people will worship me. Hey, isn't that a bit egocentric and stupid? Maybe, but I'm cool with it, you know, I like it. I want to be a deity. Fine. You can become a deity. You can become a big deity. You can become as big as Surya Deva. And there is something much further up on that curve, which is enlightenment, liberation. And this is where finally this concept of karma is coming. Because most of this process on the wheel is conditioned by karma. What keeps us attached to a certain existential condition and generates again and again that existential condition and the coming ones are what is called karma. And this karma, that's why the karma, bad or good, is the enemy of the spiritual people. Because the karma is a sort of a compulsory project. You cannot really do what you want you do what karma dictates. We will talk about karma a little bit in our next meeting, where I'm going to conclude the ideas about the spiritual realization. What's the status? Like, what's the difference? A person like Ramakrishna, or a person like Shankaracharya, or like Milarepa, what are they? I just want to simply uh, open that for you, so that you search in your heart and you see if it's something for you. Honestly, 
there were people who came to me and said, Swami, I don't think this is for me in this life. Like, you know, I can understand that Milarepa is great, but guess what? I don't want to be the next Milarepa. While there are people in this room who I know that they would love to be the next Milarepa. And thus, human beings are very different in their hearts. And you should not despair because I'm giving you this discrimination talks about the spiritual reality. So you can see who you are and what you want to be. To be realistic and not to go into too big shoes. And to know what you can be. What is realistic to assume that can happen to you. And learn to live with it. Because if you cannot be Milarepa, the question is, could you be like Mother Teresa? Could you be like who else? Like what else? Comparatively. By comparison, we can see it about what level of humanity can you be. Can you be a Bodhisattva? Can you be, what can you be? Do you like to do Karma Yoga? Can you be of service? Do you believe in the ideals of non-violence, of Jesus? Like, what exactly can be done? Maybe you are capable to heal people's physical and emotional problems. You won't be able to go to nirvana. But you can deal with people's body and psyche. That's a great thing. How many people who are agonizing are coming to a place like Agama. People for whom the official medicine doesn't give satisfactory answers and solutions. How many people have come to Agama and they had serious health problems, either physical or emotional of other kinds, and now they are in a much, much better place. Many, I tell you, because I've seen it for years and years. So, therefore, there are people who might just want to have this. You know, maybe I cannot enlighten other people and be a lighthouse for humanity and be a luminary and this. I cannot be the next Swami Shivananda, but I can be a great alternative healer who uses the power of Mother Nature for healing. And then in five lifetimes, I'll probably get the zest and the good karma to become a Buddha. Like if my time has not come, I can acknowledge it, but if your time has not come to be a Buddha in this life, it doesn't mean that you cannot do a lot of wonderful, beneficial things in this life as preparation for when you will be a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. Because remember that there is one thing which is inevitable. Enlightenment, liberation, nirvana, happiness. It's inevitable. The very process of evolution pushes all of you there. Usually when people get closer, they start getting magnetized by it. And these are the people who come to yoga schools, to spiritual teachers, people who go into monasteries and dojos and places like this, and they accelerate their practice. Because these are the people who simply say, enough is enough, I would try to do it in this lifetime. And thus, remember, these things are many shades of gray, and taking them black and white is very harmful because it means that people who are not going to reach nirvana in this lifetime, they are losers and idiots. And they are not. They are our brothers and sisters. 
You cannot condemn one apple that it got ripe on the 23rd of July and another apple on the same tree got ripe on the 5th of August. That's the law of nature. Some people are getting ripe earlier, some people are getting ripe later. And that's why you cannot force these laws of nature. But you can keep an open mind, you can keep a good aspiration, you can keep the desire to create positive karma, you may want, you may desire not to live in a bad world, and for the rest, it's all about grace, it's all about aspiration, and it's all about accelerating your evolution. Like, when you see that it's coming, then you go for it. I will go more in details about what is this spiritual realization, like what does it characterize, what is it characterized by, just for you to see if it's a worthy ideal, just to have it spelled out and to say, well, that kind of interests me, or not, or not right now, because you are doomed to get there anyway, but maybe not right now, and at the same time to see, to speak a little bit then about karma, because once you understand the big picture and the context, then we get some teachings about what's the relevance of karma. Of course, much has been explained. And again, some of you are in the first level and you don't have access to the Q&A. Even this week at the Q&A, I had another speech about methods of managing karma, karma and its management and so on. So I give this information at various levels depending when you are in the educational process. Here the satsangs, these are lectures open to the whole school. They are open even to people who are not part of Agama and who are just curious to come and listen. And that's why in these uh, satsangs, I always have to start from the basics. I always have to start assuming that you don't know a lot of things. That's why sometimes it can seem redundant, repetitive, but there are new people, new people, new people coming all the time. And the satsangs are the contact of the guru with the whole school and uh, the function of them is to transmit clarity, aspiration, motivation, and also this discrimination. So you know, you understand who you are, what you are, what you are doing, and not to live an artificial life in which you want one thing, but you actually pretend you want something else because you feel it's your spiritual duty to pretend this rather than that, and all those things. So... Um, this, there will be a third discourse in this series about spiritual evolution, spiritual realization, and the functions of karma. But for tonight, it is more than enough. Thank you all for having the patience and resisting to a bit of a delayed program. We'll continue in the coming weeks.